The Dickheads are presented in color. Hey, Dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from two sides of the globe to your brain hole, we have a special award-winning guest. I can't even list all the awards he's been nominated for because it's a lot but he won the World Fantasy Award for a novel that we're going to be talking about today, Osama, which uh, has a 10th anniversary edition coming out. We'll get to that in a little bit. Lavi Tadar, welcome to the Dickheads podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I love talking about... I want to say Philip K. Diggs. It doesn't sound weird Yeah, to talk about Diggs. But yes, uh, we're talking about uh, Philip K. Diggs. We'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, now, you were born and raised on a kibbutz in northern Israel, which I think is a really interesting way to start off the life of a science fiction writer, because it's one that is very different from a lot of the other authors that we read. Um, can you tell, tell us a little bit about that childhood and, and how it impacted you becoming a science fiction writer? Well, I mean, I'm basically a character out of a Philip K. Dick novel, aren't I? Because that's... Well, he did... Uh, well, the kibbutz were on Mars, but yes. <laughs> that's, well, I never said it wasn't on Mars. Um, <laughs> no, it, it wasn't. But um, no, I think that's, that was one of the reasons that he always appealed to me in particular, because I, as you said, I grew up on this small kibbutz, which for people who don't know what that is, is sort of a weird socialist commune. Zionist utopian socialist commune, um, you know, and I still remember my grandfather's generation. They would, you know, they would talk about, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat, and you know, I had an uncle who wore a beret or a casket or something. You know, they had that Soviet <laughs> fashion where the men would wear the thick beards. I know the thick mustaches, that sort of stuff, and they were horrified. You know, when Stalin died, I think they they, they all worshipped Stalin back in the day, and then when he died and the, the truth about Stalin started to come out. It absolutely devastated people, but they really looked up to him. But that was a bit before my time. I mean, in my time, it was more of a, almost like a dying phenomenon at that point. Um, but I grew up reading all this translated American science fiction that we had in Hebrew, you know, which kind of was basically two people, I think, deciding what's going to get published. So we got all the classics. We got all the award-winning novels. We got... We got all the weird 60s sci-fi as well, which I think was was the sort of thing these guys liked. So I've always had a lot of Philip K. Dick, a lot of Stilazny, a lot of Samuel Delaney, a lot of um, Rogers, did I say Rogers Delazny? You know, that sort of stuff. Um, and Philip K. Dick always appealed to me because he was the only guy that I could see myself in his books, however, briefly. But he mm. had the Israelis, you know, in um, one of my favorite Philip K. Dick books is The Simulacra which mm -hmm. is not considered one of the great Philip K. Dick novels. Um, but it's the one where you have the Israelis kind of developing time travel technology and negotiating with the Nazis, going back in time, negotiating with the Nazis. And then he's got, like, guys going off to Mars and settling, you know, the Kibbutzim on Mars. And um, um, you get that in the... You get that in... Is it the... It's not in The Man in the High Castle. It's the similar... Uh, uh, Martian Time Slip. Is it Martian Time It's slip? Martian Time Slip. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And but, I thought that was so rare, you know, to find myself in a science fiction book. Um, so that was a huge influence on me in hindsight. Did you, 
set out as even when you were reading this, did you did you have early on the sense that I want to do this or that I want to put my voice into the to the science fiction mix? Was that something that you did when you were young or has been a dream since you were young? It was, although I started off as a poet in Hebrew. I mean, my first book is a Hebrew poetry collection that you won't find. <laughs> although occasionally people do find it, which is the weirdest thing. Um, but, you know, at some point I thought, I, I, I want to write science fiction. I want to do it in English rather than Hebrew. And, mm-hmm. you know, to be fair, I don't know if Israelis consider me an Israeli science fiction writer or Israeli writer, period, because I've not lived there for such... You know, I've lived, I've traveled around the world and I've lived mm-hmm. in England for quite a long time. And for some reason that, you know, it, my brother always says, unless you win the Nobel Prize and then you've always been an Israeli, you're not, they're not going <laughs> to consider you. You know, if you're Natalie Portman and you won an Oscar, it doesn't matter that you only spent three years there. You'll always be an Israeli uh, mm-hmm. because you have an Oscar. So I need to win an Oscar or an equivalent. And then I would always have been. The World um, Fantasy Awards pretty good, though. It's Especially- not enough, apparently. Not enough. <laughs> but, um, but um, yeah, no, so, you know, I, I didn't necessarily set out to do that, but I knew that one thing that set me apart from the people that I was essentially competing against, you know, because I was writing for magazines. I was submitting to the short story magazines. And I figured there's like a thousand people every month submitting stories to the magazines and they're all American and they all know America far better than I do. Like, I don't think the X-Files is probably a very good guide to, to America, you know, right. um, so maybe that's not my best reference point. Um, but what I do know is the stuff that they don't know and I can make it, I can use it to stand out. So it was quite a cynical ploy in a way. But what actually happened, because I've lived, you know, I went away and I, I spent some time in the South Pacific and in Southeast Asia, and I was writing stories that were set in the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, but because of, you know, I could use that sort of material. And it never felt honest to me. You know, it was always written from an outsider perspective, which is fine to a degree. You can be an outsider, but I, it wasn't doing, it wasn't honest, you know, that, that was my feeling. And I thought with Central Station, I have the opportunity to go back to something that I do know, that I do have ownership of, and that can be an honest work. I also didn't believe anyone was going to buy it. So, you know, because why would they? Because one of the things I wanted to do in it, which again goes back to Philip K. Dick in a way, is that I wanted to write a story where there's no real plot. There's no action adventure. No one has to save the world. It's just about little people having little lives, which is the only, you know, Philip Kennedy was the only writer who ever did that. And he told us about just these very mundane lives, these very small lives and the people who lived them, uh, which mm-hmm. was such a great appeal. So I wanted to do that. And I thought, no one is going to buy this. So I wrote it. I, I went back to that old style of writing of science fiction where they would write short stories that link together into a novel. And the idea was you can sell the short stories to the magazines and worst case scenario, no one, no one's going to publish the novel. At least I published the short story. <laughs> and I didn't think anyone was going to buy this. And, you know, occasionally I still see a review that says this, nothing happens in this book. It has no plot. And I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the point. But I understand your reluctance. I mean, it became, <laughs> and it became far more successful for me than I ever, I honestly, I didn't think anyone would read it. And, Occasionally, people tell me they've read it, and I say, I kind of go, really? <laughs> I'm going to buy it. You know, well, it's so and, surprising. 
and not only that, here in San Diego, California, like I originally discovered it by just seeing it on the shelf at the library and wow. and seeing the science fiction tag. Well, that's so, what, you know, I grew up in the library. I mean, the library was so important to me on the kibbutz because that's where I could get the books and the magazines. Mm-hmm. And I always, in a way, think that you're writing for that kid in the library. You know, you're writing for that person who's going to find your book. Maybe after, like, you forgot you've written it and someone sits there and they, they find, you know, because that was my experience of reading. is just discovering these books off the shelves and, mm-hmm. and having that whole world opening up, in a way. So that's right, that's what... That's why I always tell people, like, hey, not not everyone has to buy my book, but you could request it at your library. That's always very helpful. Um, but uh, so one of the things that, too, uh, about PKD, and it's interesting that you hit on this, is, like, the um, he, he always very rarely wrote stories with with typical heroes or, you know, he did a lot of working class characters and and that kind of thing. And that's one of the things that I think appeals with PKD for, for many of us is, is the fact that these are relatable characters. And it's funny because we just recently did flow my tears and flow my tears is a rare one because the hero is, or the main character is like a big TV star and all that. And that's by seeing that you see just how, like, how strange it was for him to write a character like that. Um, and so, so, but you're saying Central Station kind of was inspired by that whole kind of amorphous thing that he was doing with books like Simulacra and World Jones Made and stuff like that, right? Yeah, I mean, he's not, you know, if you read the book, I mean, it's such a love letter to old science fiction. So you're finding references to C.L. Moore. You're finding references to um, Nostralia and, you know, Codrena Smith, who I absolutely adore. So, you know, Clifford Simak, who I absolutely love. So a lot of writers have... I think, gone out of fashion to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Philip K. Dick, the, the opposite happened, that he wasn't that fashionable when he was alive, but he became huge Hollywood fodder. And I just have a love of, of, of certain kind of odd science fiction, you know, that I go back to. I just did a book. We had a lockdown. We had the last lockdown, and he just broke me mentally. And I couldn't really work on the book I was working on. I thought, I'll start... You know, I'll just start this book. I don't know what it's about. It's about a robot, and the robot shows up somewhere, and he does something, and I don't know who this robot is. I'll just follow it through, and suddenly I had this short novel that's coming out next year called Neom. Um, and at some point, this robot, um, you know, he's, he's in the war, and he's got, like, a whole group of buddies who are all robots, and they all go off together. But each robot comes from a different type of science fiction story. So we've got the second variety robot from Philip K. Dick. Mm-hmm. And we've got the Fondly Fahrenheit robot from Alfred Bester. And we've got an Asimov robot and a Simak robot, you know. So that's kind of my approach is I'd like to take all these, these very odd and often obscure references. But even then, they're not as obscure as if I put in an Israeli or Hebrew reference. No one ever gets those. And, you know, with Unholy Land, I think it's full of references that people just won't get because they're not culturally um, recognizable for them. But I always think it doesn't matter. The story should work on a level on its own. And if you get some of the background, some of the deeper meaning, that's great. But it's not essential. Yeah, and and I think it's it's always cool to read stories that have that kind of cultural spin on it. 
Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, I like all retro sci-fi. I'm a huge John Bruner guy. Um, but I do, uh, but I'm a big smack fan as well. We covered way station here during our sixties, Hugo's winter series. And, um, but I, I, I also saw with central station a little bit of, of, um, Samax city and the structure with the, with the, the interconnected short stories as well. Um, and city is one of my favorite, um, Samak novels. And so it was funny because I do remember reading it and th- I do remember having the distinct thought that this author is probably a Samak fan at some point. <laughs> and so it's, it's good to hear that you, that, that you are, um, are there any other, um, classic science fiction writers? I also, um, shout out to CL Moore, who's from my home state of Indiana, um, that you mentioned, is there any other of the old school or the retro authors that you feel are underrated or that, that you personally think that dickheads should expand out into? Um, no, I mean, Zena Henderson, I thought was interesting with the people's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I have holes in my education because I, I grew up on translation, so whatever wasn't translated, I wasn't necessarily aware of, or I wasn't necessarily drawn to. So someone like Lovecraft, for example, who's an interesting writer in terms of the influence on the field. I never had, I never read him. I never had any sort of connection to him. And it was only a few years ago that I thought, well, I should read him. I should find out if it's as bad as it looks. So, and I actually realized it's actually quite good. Like what he was doing, he was doing mad, and then I got interested in his life, which was so messed up and so so <laughs> sad in a way, um, and have this kind of unfinished novel about you know what um, what if sort of thing. Um, one of the one of the books I've got coming out at some point um, is sort of about the golden age of science fiction. So it kind of the idea that um, L. Ron Hubbard, what if L. Ron Hubbard basically was right about everything. What if, what if he came up with some theory that explained everything and just happened to be true? That's basically my pitch for the book. And, um, yeah, that, that's, 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 you know, so I've been researching that, you know, that, that golden age, the time when Asimov was young and Heinlein and, and all the rest of them. And it's fascinating. It's, like a, it's a completely different world, you know. The wars <laughs> over the first world con. Oh, Fred Paul, you know, um, if we're talking about writers, I mean, Gateway is such a great novel and, I got to meet him. I think he's the only person from that era that I got to meet in person. So, oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, we just did a, uh, we just released an episode on Judith Merrill, who was uh, one, uh, was married to Fred Paul for a while. And, um, and uh, they, uh, you know, just that whole crew of the Futurians, that's, that's so uh, mind blowing what an influence they all had from Asimov to Merrill to Frederick Paul to Wolheim, just like how, like, you know, they extended out <laughs> into the community. It's just really cool. And and um, I think people forget sometimes just how small that community was when they started, you know. And uh, But if you think about Gernsback inventing fandom, no, no one really <laughs> remembers the fact he invented fandom. He created fandom he, as a way of selling 
you know, selling magazines, essentially. And he kind of somehow, he recognized that these people are going to be, you know, they're going to be a part of this, this fan thing. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't think anyone was really conscious of it at the time. So he was, you know, I think Gernsback is very underrated. Like, you know, he was treated, like, apparently he wasn't a very nice person, but the way they talked, you know, they talked about him as, as Hugo the Rat, you know, which had the, all those anti-Semitic connotations that, of course, they were, you know, people like like Campbell and so on were very nicely anti-Semitic, you know. They were, they were very nice about it, but they weren't the nicest people around. Um, but actually, he was, you know, he was the guy who said there's this genre called science fiction. I'm going to show you what it, should, what it looks like. And he's the one who invented fandom. And, uh, you know, and we, you know, you have an award name for him, so he's not... He's not forgotten by any means, but mm -hmm. but I always, thought, I always thought he was such an interesting character because he was an immigrant. He was a Jewish immigrant from Luxembourg who came to America at 18 and kind of was a magazine publisher and an inventor. He was a very eccentric sort of inventor. And you kind of get the sense there's like a novel there about his life. But but I, I know very little about him. Mm, yeah. Well, and we did get that, re you know, uh, Alex Nevelli did a great history of Campbell, but I'm not sure we have an, an equal work on Gernsback, but it'd also be interesting to see I, just, you know, I mean, obviously I'm thinking about it because of this conversation, but it would be interesting to see uh, the cultural impact that uh, the Jews in the science fiction community at that time had, whether you're talking Wolheim who wasn't practicing, but a secular Jew and, and, and his family was very Jewish you know, and Asimov and, you know, there's, there's interesting stories there too. I, um, yeah. You don't often get to talk about the golden age of science fiction. Uh, I could go, I could go on for hours. You know? Well, yeah, let's, let's segue that into Osama. Um, this, <laughs> a very this, smooth segue there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're coming up on the 10th, this is the 10th anniversary and you're doing a 10th anniversary edition, right? For, for Osama? Yeah, so it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and then the 10th anniversary of Osama, which is kind of weird. Um, yeah, 10th anniversary. I, you know, that's weird. Because no one wanted... It's a book no one wanted to uh, publish. Mm -hmm. you know, well, Norman so Spinrad had the same battle with Osama the Gun, which was a very different uh, sci-fi take yes. on it. Yes, oh, yeah. yeah I met Spinrad, you know. Yeah, we had we had Spinrad on the show. It was a, it was our most hilarious interview because he <laughs> he kind of wanted to rip my head off for the first five minutes, and then uh, <laughs> the rest of the interview went great. <laughs> <laughs> um, the technology of getting him on was was very painful, um, and then uh, but he, he settled in when he realized that I knew his work uh, as well as I knew, knew PKDs, but. Um, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. But I want to talk about the fact that you won the World Fantasy Award for this book that nobody wanted, right? Um, this And you beat out some some fairly minor competition in George R.R. R. Martin and Stephen King, who were also nominated in the category, um, right? So I believe, or at least they were nominated that year, right? Um, yeah, I could, but... I could be you wrong. Know what? I uh, I got back on the plane. I actually went to Toronto to pick up the award, and I got back on the plane to England, and uh, the person next to me was reading a Stephen King novel. So 
I don't think he was that bothered, you know. <laughs> um, right. No, yeah, I'm just, I, I I'm just saying it's pretty good competition there. Uh, it's something to feel pretty proud about, I think. Um, it was a weird experience, um, you know. It, it was a book that I cared about that I felt was was right. You know, mm. I think it was the first book I wrote that I felt was me. Whatever, and, and I I got to write it with no pressure because no one knew I was writing it. I could do whatever I want, and I just I wrote it in Laos, in you know, in this small country in Southeast Asia, where really there wasn't any pressure on me to to write this book or not write this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, no one would buy it. Like, literally no one would buy it. <laughs> I mean, I think it went around the world and people still wouldn't buy it. And um, and so winning, you know, I, I honestly thought no one, you know, we found a small publisher in the UK, PS Publishing, who specialized in limited editions and very small print runs. Um, they agreed to put it out. Even even they, even then, they kind of, wanted, they were like, are you sure about the title? Can we change the title? And I'm like, no, the title's kind of, important and and they put it out and i was convinced that that was it like i gave it a good shot it came out from a small press no one's going to read this book um so the whole thing was basically you know expecting nothing mm-hmm. and i was like well you know i managed to get it published in you know as a nice book and it's okay if no one reads it and then it kind of gathered this momentum and it went on to win the oh, it was very <laughs> very surreal you know um mm-hmm. So let's talk about how you developed this book because, or where the idea came from. And we, sh- I should say that one of the reasons why we're talking about this is that uh, on our Lies Inc. episode, um, and uh, we had a special guest who was uh, David Harlan Wilson, who's uh, author, professor, teaches science fiction at Wright State University. And he was on our show, and we always have a dick-like suggestion. His dick-like suggestion was Osama. And he referred to it as the type of novel that Philip K. Dick would love to have written. Um, that is what what he said. And I have to agree that this book is low-key one of the – a lot of people want to write like Philip K. Dick, but a lot of times they end up writing like Philip K. Dick movies and not like Philip K. Dick novels. And what I appreciated about Osama is that in the in all the right ways, I think you took a lot of the best lessons from the good things that Philip K. Dick did with for with specifically Man in the High Castle. Um, which is well, and we'll get into the nitty-gritty details of that when we get into spoilers, but where did this idea come from? Now you said in, in I believe in the uh, on the first page of, of my edition, the Solaris edition, you talk about having survived um, or being nearby uh, a couple of terrorist attacks. Now you travel, you're you've been a world traveler since you were 15 years old, um, and that's part of your biography. Were were these instances? Were they the initial spark that came that brought the idea? Yeah, I mean, it actually took 10 years to to write the book, uh, to get to the point of writing the book. So I think for most people, the war on terror and and the events of the last 20 years began with September 11 in 2001. Um, For me, it was 1998. It was the American American embassy bombings. 
So I was, you know, at the time I was traveling in, you know, I lived in South Africa and I, I traveled through um, southern, eastern and southern Africa a lot. And I was in Dar es Salaam when the American embassy bombings happened. So there was one, I think it was the Dar, Dar es Salaam embassy and the, the Nairobi embassy. And I was recovering from malaria, which I was doing quite often at the time. I had malaria quite a lot. And as it turned out, so, so a week later, I went up back to Nairobi and I saw the embassy, you know, I saw the remains of the embassy. But by a twist of fate, I also stayed in the same hotel that the terrorists, the bombers had stayed in. Um, so I was there somewhere in between the bombing. You know, I, I, for all I know, I could have been there at the same time as them, pretty much. Um, and of course, that hotel got shut down. I kind of looked it up afterwards. So that was the start of the fascination. I was so close. I, you know, could have been staying in the same room as these guys. I literally saw the, you know, the, the bombed embassy, what was left of it. And then for a while, you know, it felt like it was almost like following us. Um, you know, there was the London bombings in in 2003, and then there was the Sinai bombing. So again, I, you know, I was over there at the time, and, um, <laughs> and kind of I was like, can can you guys? And actually, the last one was uh, when I came back to London. So after the book was published. And my local supermarket, there was a beheading outside what was my then my local supermarket. Uh, it was in all the news. And I, I was I was in the pub somewhere, I think, and I came back and there, there's army, you know, police forces everywhere. And there was this this horrible incident, this horrible crime that took place. And I just thought, I can't get a break um, on a selfish level. No, so that, that was what it was. And um, I actually tried to work it out in a short story. So I think Alan Dutlow published a story I wrote called My Travels with Al-Qaeda that kind of has the basis for the book in it. It's about this couple who are trapped in a time loop between these various incidents. And that was really the core of the book. And then it was only when it got to, I think it was 2008, and I was living in Laos and I had no outside pressure i thought but i'll try and write the book that i want to write and if it's terrible no one has to know about it mm -hmm. right well and so well i guess we'll wait for spoilers to get into to exactly where the, the the plot came from but um back to to the trying to publish it um you must have gotten people telling you this this won't fly this you can't touch this issue. Did you hear that a lot? Did you have publishers telling you that? I don't think it was even that. I think because it's not a commercial novel, you know, it doesn't have, uh, you know, and, and I was told if you can structure it as more of a traditional thriller and, you know, uh, you might have a place. But and don't forget, during the same time, you had a whole bunch of novels playing with these concepts. I mean, when Osama came out in the UK, there was also another book called Osama with the same publisher. But that was that one was done as a SEAL team, you know, thriller or whatever, and must have outsold me by a million to one. And there was that book that kind of reversed the, you know, did an alternate history read reversed. Who was it? Was it Matt Ruff who did that book? Uh, well, El, Omar El Akkad, the uh, the Canadian um, journalist, uh, Arab Canadian journalist, did a did a, the American War, which was kind of flipped it and did. 
Like, yeah. There was also a Matt Ruff. And that, this is what I mean. There was a whole bunch of books that were doing the same thing. Um, and I think for me, it's because my work isn't really commercial in the sense that people expect, you know, commercial fiction to be. Um, so I think that was a part of it. And a part of it is probably, yeah, it, you know, it sounded like you could not do it and your life would be easier so let's not do it you know i think that's what it comes down to i mean i've actually found every book since to be a battle i mean it's never easy to sell a book uh, right and it just seems to get harder and harder you know so I'm, I'm very lucky that i'm still able to to put out these very weird books that i do yeah that's true and one of the things that is uh, I, yeah it's not a very commercial book but to me um it, it's such a powerful statement on it and, and brings very unique points of view to and speaking to somebody who went and tried to read everything that speculative fiction did on the war on terror. Um, I, I think it's a very unique look at it, but also um, and I, it's one of the reasons, you know, why I wanted to do this is because I just, I just think the book um, just really hits those issues. So um before we get into spoilers, the one last in the, the writing of this, the, the one aspect of Philip K. Dick's alternate worlds and what he does, and I say this as this is my last pitch to dickheads listening, that if you haven't read Osama, this question is geared towards getting you to, to pause by Osama and come back. And, and enjoy the spoiler discussion. But a lot of PKD's alternate worlds were not the opposite of ours. A lot of times you read alternate fiction, it's like, you know, Spock has a beard. Now it's, it's the evil world, right? And um, what's cool about the lessons that we learn from Man in the High Castle is you don't have to just make an opposite world. Um, the world in where the grasshopper lies heavy, the novel inside of Man in the High Castle. Sorry, I'm about to have dogs yell at each other. <laughs> um, the thing about Man or the grasshopper lies heavy is that this novel inside the novel is not just an opposite of our world. It's very different. And it seemed like this novel does that. So can you talk? Give talk to us about world building and were you influenced from from Man in the High Castle for that? Well, I mean, the novel is in conversation with the Man in the High Castle, amongst amongst other things. But it's I did a book called A Man, um, a Man Lies Dreaming, um, which is one of my favorite books, and that's it's about Adolf Hitler as a private detective. Um, it's another alternate history that isn't quite like ours. Um, in the Hitler, Hitler lost <laughs> alternate history, you know, um, and, um, you know, and that one's very much in dialogue with Chandler, with, with detective fiction and with the way they do things. And I think Osama is in dialogue with Philip K. Dick without trying to be necessarily a Philip K. Dick novel, because I do find that when I want to channel more of a Philip, K., you know, one of my favorite stories of his, by the way, is Rook which was his first published story, I think, about the dog. Mm -hmm. Tony Boucher that, bought that. Yeah. <laughs> right. The, the dog who thinks the garbage men are, are, I don't know what he thinks they are exactly. He thinks they're rude. They're some sort of alien species and they're stealing the treasures that the, gar, the dog is guarding. Um, 
you know, and I love going back to some Philip K. Dick occasionally and then trying to take something from that. Um, so I wrote a story that came out this year or during the pandemic, a story called Blue and Blue and Blue and Pink. And that was me trying to kind of going back and just reading some Philip K. Dick and then trying to do a pandemic-y Philip K. Dick story. Um, so Osama isn't, you know, the style isn't, it's not a Philip K. Dick style, but it's so in dialogue with what he does. And, and you know, it references it so many times, you know, that it's, it's, it's very obvious that that's what it is. Yeah, I think that, that conversation that you had with Manda, because I use the exact words, those words in my review, is that it, it, the influence becomes more of like, in, in a sense, I like that what you're doing is using kind of a similar structure to to look at a modern issue. And what's neat about it for me, Lavi, and one of the things that I think is really cool about it as, as a dickhead is that since Philip K. Dick died in 1982, we didn't get to see his take on, on um, climate change. We didn't get to see his take on... Um, the internet or uh, the war on terror. And what, what's cool is, is that if authors who are really good studies of Philip K. Dick, not just the movies, but the novels can take that influence. And what I think is really neat about it. And I think that's what D. Harlan Wilson was hitting on is, is that I felt like I got, even though you're a very different writer with very different perspectives, I got to see like, Oh, what, could Philip K. Dick have done with with this part of history, um, and and an idea on kind that? Kind of you, yeah. No, no, and, and that's that. I, I say that as a last call to 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 my dickheads out there on the other end. That if you have not read Osama, pause this now. Run to bookshop.org because they're better than Amazon, and you can select a local bookstore to benefit from your purchase. And buy a copy of Osama and read it or get it from your library if they have it. If they don't have it, request it. Pause now and come back because we're going to talk spoilers. We're going to talk about how this book was created. And anybody who knows me or listened to any of my interviews, I love to drill down with creatives on what they do. So any last things you want to say before we get into spoilers um, about Osama? Uh, yeah, no, I, I'll second that. Go and buy the book. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're in we're in uh, we're in spoilers now. Okay. So the world building in this alternate world, but not opposite world. Um, a lot of it takes. Our main character is in French Indochina. So now that I know that you were living in Laos when you wrote that, that makes a lot of sense. That that would be kind of the setting, but um, tell me about how did you, it seems like this Cairo conference, which we're going to go more into from 1921. It seems like you, you took this Cairo conference and the British um, carving up of the middle East as a jumping point for the world building. And am I correct on that? Or, or, I mean, you know, the problem with the summer is that it, it very much depends on how you read the book, right? And yeah, I'm not sure I'm even in a position. I can only say how I read the book at that point, because 
there's different readings for this book and they're equally valid, you know. And I mean, one reading, which is maybe my preferred reading, is that it's it's a singing detective type situation and he's in uh -huh. a coma and it's all a, a, a dying fantasy, you know. And then there's the argument in the book that also this is a legitimate um, alternate reality that is porous with our own. And then another one, I think there's another interpretation. So, you know, I mean, for me... I think the the what what does John Kluke call it the 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 John Bar point the the point where things change yeah it kind of goes Cairo conference but I don't you know I don't think he takes it very seriously in that sense and if you read through the book a lot of the reality is made up of bits it's made up of noir films it's made up of a, a, a literally a photograph at some point you know when he's in Paris. He steps into a photograph of the Gare du Nord. Um, Laos is kind of like a Philip K. Dick style alternate history, you know, that it has the, you know, the Empire of Japan and so on, which is which is very much the man in the high castle. But he doesn't take any of those bits super seriously. Mm -hmm. um, you see what I mean? So, so the argument is, it could be a real alternate history. It could be something that he makes up. This guy puts together in his mind out of bits he likes or knows or or thinks. Um, and, you know, it, far be it for me to answer that question. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure what is the correct answer. One of the things that I was really influenced by um, with the work that I've been working on recently um, by Man in the High Castle was that, that Tagomi going to and from worlds is never explained. It's never explained. You know, um, I mean, I think that that is, you know, and Philip K. Dick, the genius in his work is that he can suggest things in a single line sometimes. Mm. You know, the, the, the one is it in. Yeah, it, it's again in the Mona High Castle when he just mentions what happened in Africa. You know, it's like mm. this one line. Oh, he didn't want to think about what happened there it opens it you know he elaborates a little bit later on but he leaves it it's so chilling that line that mm -hmm. you don't even want to think about what they did you know it opens up this entire universe of horror in the one line and i mm -hmm. think the other brilliant thing it does is it's that time slip moment which i think is actually essential and if you look at the the books i've done the, that sort of trilogy i've done which is a summer man likes dreaming and the violent century which are all books that look at 20th century political forces and that sort of stuff they all contain that time slip moment mm. and i think that's essential because for just one moment he grounds the entire book that he has to come time sleeping time slipping into our own reality and kind of facing the horror for him of our reality and he just grounds the entire book. I think it's a, I think it's an absolutely brilliant moment in the book. And and again, it's so brief, it's so short. And I think without that, maybe you just have a fantasy that is well written. But with it, you have a book that is so relevant. So yeah, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. I don't think he's the only person to have done the time slip. But I, th you know, I couldn't think of a better moment of a time slip. And and I love that it's unexplained. It doesn't need to be explained. It's. <laughs> Well, I used I used Osama as an example recently where somebody was talking about some science fiction movie and they said, oh, oh it's very PKD like. And they were just talking about because it, it just had the kind of, you know, the, the uh, uh, we're not real twist. 
And I said, yeah, that's PKD-like, but the part of Osama where the person goes into the picture <laughs> is, is so much more PKD. <laughs> and partially because you didn't... it Because of the whole thing of that you didn't bog us down with trying to explain how or why these things happened. It's just that that's that's the story. And I think it's an underrated aspect of of PKD is that, you know, a lot. Sometimes he just lets our imagination go. You know, it's just you just have to use your imagination. And that's just why it's it's just the imagination. And um, all right. So so with the noir setting um, and Mike. Joe's trying to find Michael Longshot, the the pulp novelist who's been writing. So in the the novel, um, Michael Longshot writes these pulp novels about Osama bin Laden as the this kind of heroic terrorist vigilante character, and these novels have become popular. I would like to talk a little bit about what you envisioned these novels being and their role of commenting on bin laden and terrorism in our world what did these novels in the fictional world what 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 were you thinking about when when you envisioned these novels inside the novel well i mean if you want to go down to the the really the technical stuff of it i mean i think when i sat down i knew they were important because they were they were reality you know they're, they're actually they're not pulp they're describing our reality. But initially, I thought I could do them as a sort of pulp. I thought I could do them as a sort of 87th precinct. Uh, mm. It was Ed McBain, you know, has that very detailed, specific writing style. And when I sat down to write even just the first one, I realized it doesn't work. Like, the only way to do them is, like, journalistic entries, you know. Mm. They're facts. They're just the facts. They go like that. They're not very long. Um, and they, they are the opposite of pulp. You know, whereas when we mm. get into the story itself, it's written in this sort of dreamlike, you know, they're like images. So each, you know, you don't even get chapters, do you? You get images. Each one is like mm -hmm. a visual image. And we move from section to section sort of thing. But and those sections are completely different in the style. Um, and I think because you couldn't treat them, you know, because it's reality, because you're describing the, the pain and suffering of real people, you can't. Um, you can't really do, you know, you can't turn it into a cheap pulp. Mm. Um, we only treat, you know, we, we actually do treat it as cheap pulp, but I couldn't do it in the book. The, the, the third section of the book, which is different, is the ghost story section, which I knew from very early on I would have to write. Um, and, mm. and I really wasn't looking forward to writing. So this is kind of like first-person accounts of the people who die in September 11th. Mm. Um, and or not just September, I'm sorry, in, in several of the attacks. And I really wasn't looking forward to doing that. And I really felt, you know, it's such a fine line to walk. I mean, you can't, you know, if it becomes exploitative or it becomes romanticized, or there's so many pits. And, and it ended up being quite short. I think it's only 3,000 words, which, which was as long as it needed to be. And it was very, very, very much based on real accounts, real experiences, you know. Every, the details have to be had to be true, like as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. So I was reading, you know, I was reading survivor accounts of the various. I was reading reports. I was reading FBI 
you know, public FBI reports. I was reading whatever there was available. Um, I spent a day looking to find out what type of shoes um, the, the, the shoe bomber actually wore. Mm. And it turned out that I think it was a bit of a fashion industry secret that it might have kind of ruined the brand. So, uh, you know, I, I never found out which hiking shoes or which <laughs> boots they were. They were sort of generic boots, I guess, but I guess we'll never know. <laughs> Maybe now it's on the Internet. I don't know. But I did spend like a whole day trying to find just the specific type of shoe that he wore, you know. Interesting. So that was kind of that was kind of what I was doing. Whereas when I was writing the actual fiction, I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm making it up from various bits and pieces. And uh, yeah, well, and with the fiction within the fiction, then you, I guess, you you want little differences. You want little things to 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 not be correct. One of the funny things um, was I read a review somewhere along the line of Man in the High Castle where somebody said. Well, you know, when when he talks about our world, like that's not exactly how the history went. And, he was, and you know, it's funny because when we were on our show, we had to remind people that he's never talking about our world in that novel, you know, um, not really in a sense. And so what you were doing was kind of blending these things. And, that, and that's really interesting, too. Yeah, I mean, what I was doing. What I was doing with, you know, if you look at Unholy Land, because you said you read Unholy Land, right? Is that? I, I, no, I read uh, Central Station. Oh, right, right. Okay, so Unholy Land kind of takes that theme a bit further, that it introduces one reality that isn't our reality, and then it introduces several other realities, and they're all... They're well, you not... know I'm reading it now. So. Right, right. <laughs> well, you sold is... me now. <laughs> one of them is our reality, and that was interesting, because I was trying to do... And especially with the main reality that I was writing, I was trying to create a sort of melding. Because, like, if you look at alternate Jewish alternate histories, you know, the like the Yiddish Policeman's Union, the mm. Yiddish Policeman, which is a good book, but it's essentially American Jews in America. That's it doesn't really the world building. I don't know, if, like their culture is all that different. And then yeah, that. There's an Israeli novel that does the same thing in, in Africa. And again, it's very much Israelis transplanted somewhere. And I was sort of trying to meld, you know, trying to really figure out how the culture might have emerged out differently, how the language itself might have been different. I don't know if it was successful, but it was an interesting thing, which, again, you're trying to tell through very little details that are scattered throughout the book. Just the details have to be, as you said, slightly wrong. You know, everything has to be slightly off. Um, so, so that was interesting. Or summer, yeah. Summer only has how many realities does it have? I'm not sure now. Um, <laughs> a, a couple, <laughs> um, for sure. <laughs> um, so it's a weird book. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is one of the things that's great about it. Um, and so you must have, within the editorial process, been a little worried about, um, you know, well, at a certain point that one of the things about a book like this is that you can just go, well, you know, there's interpretation. So it's okay. If not everybody, if it's not super clear interpretation is fine. Right. Um, I've, I've had this issue recently. Um, I've got a book that's coming out. I'm sorry if I keep staggering to other books, but that's fine. I mean, I've got a book that's coming out like now, like in the, few weeks or something it's called the escapement and he does the same sort of thing 
Oh, actually, I wasn't really planning. I just wanted to write like a fun secondary world Western, I guess. And it ended up being the weirdest book I must have done. And it kind of has the time slippages between our worlds or possibly our world and this very fantastical um, landscape. But it's it's a surrealist work in a way. It's inspired by surrealist art, so it doesn't make it doesn't necessarily have a coherent logic. It has dream logic, you know, but it doesn't have world building rules like Tolkien or something, you know. And my editor is a science fiction editor, and she was very perturbed by it. And she said, "Look, there has to be a reason. If you mention that this circus was fighting this circus." 500 years ago, then we need to know why were they fighting. I'm like, I don't know. I just, it's a line in a book. Um, so she was so pushy and I got so annoyed. And she hates me for this because I tell this story all the time now. But I went back to the, the first chapter and I wrote a character because they, they, this, this world is populated by clown tribes, right? There's these clowns yeah. roaming around the landscape. And I introduced this character basically. And again, spoilers, we're in the spoilers. Um, and and the guys basically, you know, they, they find this guy and they go in. It's like a house of horror. And he's got all these dead clowns in prison. And he's cutting, you know, he's operating on a clown. And he's like, I, I cut and I cut and I don't understand why they're not funny. You know, <laughs> what, what is the science of clowns? What is the biological origin? You know, <laughs> I don't understand. What is the taxonomy of clowns? You know, <laughs> and I was like, look, it doesn't all have to make sense. You just have to kind of. You know, well, as, as as dickheads like the people connected to this podcast are are going to understand what you're saying there. Uh, <laughs> on that, but on that note, though, I well, and I brought it up a little bit earlier before in in the non spoilers, but um, I do want to drill down a little bit on this Cairo conference thing because you do mention the Cairo conference in the book. <laughs> And I do believe that the way the British um, kind of wrote the maps in, in, in the early 20s of the Middle East have a lot to do with why we have conflict, so many conflicts there. Um, and so you do have a quote in the book. What if the Cairo conference in 1921 went ahead as planned and Churchill and T.E. Lawrence and Gertrude Bell dividing up the Middle East for the British? What if they chose uh, um, uh, it's a Hashemite king to rule Iraq, what would have led to a revolution in the 50s, on and on and on. But anyways, so the point being is, is that it is brought up in here. And I do think that um, as a time slippage moment or for thinking of like where all this goes, it's very important to the story because I think, think that's a huge part of the motivation of, of, of the real life um, Al-Qaeda and, 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 and what goes on there. So, so as a, as a point in history, like how much did you think about that conference? And, and, and you kind of said earlier that maybe I'm overreading this, <laughs> but, but now in spoilers, like what, well, while you're, while you were composing the book, how important did this conference loom over what you saw as the history of this region, which, you know, I only know from books and you actually grew up in. So, so how wrong am I? <laughs> no, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say the conference itself, but definitely the, 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 the fact of colonialism and the fact that the different colonial powers 
literally drew lines on a map and you see it, you know, you see it everywhere mm-hmm. in Africa, you see it everywhere in the Middle East, that it's literally lines on a map that make no sense to the, to the culture or the geographical region itself. Um, and, and not only that, but it did it for very specific reasons. So when the British created Jordan and Iraq, it was to give their allies countries, essentially, right? And then install these, these um, dynasties of kings there. Um, so a lot of it goes back to really 19th century British um, imperialism. Um, there's, there, there's no denying that, you know. Um, now, I, I'm not actually a big fan of what ifs because he said, <laughs> um, yeah. which is clearly ridiculous, but, um, you know, because I write them all the time. But, um, you know, we are living where we are living now. But to understand, you know, the reason to write these books mm-hmm. is partly to understand the process that led us here. If you think the 19th century didn't have a huge impact on the shape of the world, and don't forget the British Empire shaped like at, at the height, it was 25% of the earth, you know, to, to, to pretend that that doesn't have an impact. Or, in fact, what, what another interesting one is actually the American empire, which you never think of as a geographical empire until you start looking at all the little bits on the map. And again, when Absolutely. you live in, in somewhere like the South Pacific, you suddenly begin to see it very clearly when you had even these islands, these islands in the South Pacific, this one, you know, group of islands was jointly owned by France and Britain, and then the next one is owned by Germany, and then the next one is American. And um, it's, it's just a huge, huge um, impact on, on the shape of things. So, yeah. you know, that's what the books are kind of trying to say, and they're kind of trying to show that in a, in a hopefully entertaining <laughs> and uh, story-led version, rather than to go on about, you know, the Cairo conference. Um, which again is a, is a really interesting thing that apparently really did happen, isn't it? That um, yeah. they sat in this hotel room in Cairo um, and but, made, made these decisions that for a hundred years would are still having impact. Um, yeah, exactly a hundred years now. Um, now, one thing too for me, and we are recording this on September twelfth. Uh, so one day after the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and, um, you know, if I had been a little bit more savvy, we were recorded this a couple of weeks ago, but, um, <laughs> and it would have come out yesterday, but, uh, obviously, um, in a few weeks from now, when people hear this, uh, it's just within that context of that, uh, you know, me personally, uh, I was living in Indiana as a teacher on 9-11, um, or working as a teacher and I was in a high school um, and we had a student running down the hallways yelling, we just got attacked by Iraq, you know, <laughs> and uh, obviously had no idea what he was talking about. And I did personally at the time slow him down and say, Hey, um, do you remember the Oklahoma city bombing? So we don't know who did this, right? Like calm down. But I was in America for the kind of, insanity that came after uh, 9-11 the blame game and the and the and the kind of thing and as a as a progressive lefty radical um you know it was very hard for me to watch the narratives being created by uh the revenge narrative the things especially when there's people in other parts of the world that deal with terrorist attacks all the time in america all of a sudden it was like you know it was just a very 
strange reaction that we had here, right? Um, and this whole idea that the war on terror in many ways is a battle of narratives is one of the reasons why I think Osama is such a smart novel and, and, and really um, is, is, is another underrated aspect of people will tell you it's in conversation with man in the high castle because it's an alternate history, but it's in conversation with man in the high castle because it's about historical narratives Right. So you said it better than I could put it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Um, uh, so it, it goes, I mean, even 10 years ago when this novel came out and Osama bin Laden got an honorary funeral at sea, right? Because we couldn't have any narrative that he died a martyr, right? So the narratives of the war on terror is so much a part of this. 10 years out of this novel being released and on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, as the author of Osama, what are your thoughts about the idea of the narrative of the war on terror now? I mean, you know, what shocks me is that- I know, little question. What shocks me is that this book, we're 10 years, we're 20 years away from 9-11, 10 years away from this book having come out. And it, the book feels more relevant now, you know, mm-hmm. with, the, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, with the state of Iraq. Um, it feels more relevant now than ever because it was, you're right, it is about the stories we tell. And the war on terror, which again is, was was a George W. Bush um, expression, wasn't it? Along mm-hmm. the axis of evil, which again is such an interesting expression. The axis of evil, you know, it puts it in terms in these Christian good versus evil terms, which are, you know, very very stark and very sort of cowboyish, isn't it? Black hats versus white hats, which is the one thing Osama keeps poking at that there isn't, you know, there isn't a a single sign. He kind of looks at the reason why, you know, these attacks are happening. I was very struck by Osama bin Laden talking about the bombings in Lebanon as his initial influence when he was in, or whether he was in Beirut or whether he watched it, which was the Israeli invasion of, of Beirut, which I've been writing a novel, I've got a novel coming out next year that, that is partly set in the Lebanese civil war and and the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And I've really learned a lot of things I didn't know before, but but I'm struck by how his reaction is to atrocity, you know, that he sees hmm. the bombings and he turns him into someone who, who commits those atrocities. And then we go, or the West goes and commits horrible atrocities. And if you look at the way Iraq was, was managed, for example, you, you couldn't make that stuff up. I mean, you know, the, the guy who decides to write the traffic code for Iraq based on the state in in America that he's from. Um, I can't remember where, I can't remember which state he was from, but he was like, yeah, you know, it works for us, so we're just going to, we're going to use that for Iraq now. That's it, we're going to change. It, it, it's a farce, you know, war is a farce. It doesn't make any sense at that point. And the narrative, like, you know, one of the really frustrating things was, for example, the whole weapons of mass destruction thing in Iraq that I think everyone knew wasn't wasn't real. You know, we all knew that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
you still had the political figures at the top. It was Tony Blair and George W. Bush telling you, despite the evidence to the contrary, that there were these weapons, um, that for some reason now these weapons matter, because if they had these weapons, they would have had them for the last 20 years or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and that this war needs to happen because of that. And despite the fact that everyone knew that wasn't true, somehow that story still won, you know. And history, especially when you come from somewhere like Israel, but the history is really two stories that are competing, you know, and directly competing with each other. I, I just find that really interesting that, that this is how the world is shaped. And I mean, we live in a, right now, uh, we're so information dense and it's so much about the stories we tell or the stories that are being told to us. Um, that, yeah, you know, and, I, and if you can capture that in fictional form, if you can capture it in art rather than in a, in a YouTube rant or in a, or in an article or whatever, then then kind of you hope that you've done your job at that point. Um, you know, I don't. I'm just a writer. I don't have any any real world influence or solutions. But if I can point out some of the questions to ask of some of the absurdities of what we're dealing with, um, that's all I can really do. Because you're very helpless, aren't you? You're really a very helpless. We're helpless on on these big things, and so if you're able to write it, if you're able to express it in some way, and if it matters ten years later, um, then that's that's sort of a victory. Yeah, no, it's a huge victory, and and um, I just um, I really appreciated Osama. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I uh, it's a book that you know I liked it when I read it, but it's a book that has continued to live on in my memory, and I like it and appreciate it more as, as time goes on. Um, it's funny because I, I gave it five stars on Goodreads, but I was mentioning to a friend the other day, I was like, it's one of those books where if I could go back and add stars to it <laughs> over time, I would. Um, and I'm just, I'm very thankful that you would uh, join us on Dickheads and talk about this book. And I hope that we can add to the conversation with the 10th anniversary uh, edition and get more readers out there for it. Um, so you have, uh, it sounds like you're continuing to write about these issues, especially with the, the Lebanon civil war. Um, is that, does that book have a home or is it too early yet to talk about uh, where that's going? Yeah, no. So, um, so the next, so the book that I've got coming out just now in the States is, like I said, the escapement is completely different. So it's, it's non-political. It's the first time that I've just gone full fantasy sort of thing. I thought that was a nice change of direction. I got tired of doing the same alternate history, political noir, you know, which mm. I've done like four books of those. And I thought, uh, move on. And then I kind of realized that because obviously the people who like science fiction don't necessarily want you to go on about politics. And the people who like politics don't necessarily want you to go on about elves or whatever, you know. Um, so the next book, the, the one with the Lebanese Civil War in it, it's a book called Maror, M-A-R-O-R. And it's going to come out from my British publishers next year. So it doesn't have an American uh, publishers yet. And it's not it's a non genre book. It's a huge historical epic, basically. Ooh. So. Well, first of all, um I do like science fiction that goes on about politics. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm just taking a slight <laughs> detour 
to see That's if the fine. water is warmer, you know. But well, I thought, you, wrote, I you, thought wrote a, you wrote a King Arthur novel. I did. Yeah. And I've got the Robin Hood one coming out in the UK this month or next month, I think. So it's a very, very weird take on Robin Hood. Um, <laughs> so I think it's incredibly weird. Um, the, yeah, the King Arthur one was a lot of fun. But again, it's a political book, you know. It kind of talks about nationalism and... Um, all that sort of stuff. And then the hood talks about land ownership and that sort of stuff. Um, so hopefully I will write this quartet of English, you know, that I call it the antimatter of Britain. Um, mm. So it's kind of destroying everything the British hold dear, but looking at empire and, and, and nation building and so on. But I thought taking a slight detour into a, you know, non-genre might be interesting. Yeah, it turns no. out it turns out all you have to do is take out the elves and the aliens. Um, I thought it would be harder than that. But <laughs> no, no, no. That one I'm really fascinated uh, by and definitely. Um, um, well, I mean, you sold me on, on, on Holy Land, too. So I, I will I'll be catching up with my my Lavi Tidar uh, books for sure. Um um, I really appreciate that. And one last thing, um, can you tell us about uh, the world's best science fiction and your involvement in that? It's a huge anthology of international speculative fiction. Um, so I think it's, I can't remember how many it is, but it's about 170,000 words. It, it's kind of like, it's meant to be like a series of, not annual exactly, but maybe every two years we'll do a best world SF anthology. And it just collects, it shows you, it doesn't collect, you know, the dead voices of the 20th century. It shows you the writers who are working now across the world in science fiction. Some of them are well known. You know, I, most of the because I've been doing this for about 10 years, I've done five small press anthologies first. So a lot of the writers I published in those anthologies went on to become very well known in the field. Um, and then they are also in the first volume of the best of all the staff. Only that. They're, they're more recognized now. Um, and then the second volume would be, again, a continuation of that. So all new writers. So no one is repeated from the first volume. Uh, and just really trying to show the breadth and the width and the, the excitement of the different styles of science fiction from around the world. And I try to make sure that it is a science fiction anthology. I may have smuggled in a weird story or two, you know, because I do like the weird stories, but I made sure there's enough robots and spaceships for the people who like robots and spaceships, and there's enough recognizable science fiction in there, and, and I think it's terrific. I wish, you know, I'm so happy that I got the chance to do this book, because I've been trying to get this done for 10 years, and publishers again just say no, and I'm just too stubborn to, to take no for an answer, so... Now, are these all brand new stories or are these what you consider the best over that last decade? Yeah, I mean, they're mostly reprints. I think I have four or five originals in the first volume and I think we'll go up to seven originals in the second one. I did. Uh, so, it's, it's, so it gives me a lot to choose from. So I can really look at everything that's being published. You know, some of it is translated. Some of it is authors who write in English as a second language like me. Um, some of it, um, you know, it's people who speak English as a first language who are, you know, living um, elsewhere. Um, yeah, and I just think it shows a really good, a really good picture of where the genre is in terms of non 
American and non-British and non-Australian and so on, non-Anglophone science fiction. Um, and I mean, I, and, and you know, and uh, ideally it introduces people to writers, some of whom are new to them. You know, so I've heard from one reader, you know, at least who said that the great thing about the book was it allowed him to discover writers who could then go and look for everything else they've written. So I yeah, that no, was, and I wasn't saying that as a negative as far as being reprints because I want to see like the best of the output of the last decade right. in one one place. So it's on my list. It's a book uh, I have been very much looking forward to every time. You post about it, I would get very excited for this one it's to be coming. It's so big. It's just big. It's got a big spine. It just—it's a hardcover. You can put it on the shelf. It's got a—it's got a ribbon bookmark. Oh, I mean, a ribbon bookmark. A ribbon That's... bookmark. You should buy it for the ribbon bookmark. It's a mark of quality and class. <laughs> you know, it is a mark of quality and class. Also, uh, with the involvement of it, of one of its editors, Lavi Tidar, who is, uh, I'm very thankful to say, now an alumni of being on um, the Dickheads podcast. Um, Lavi, it was uh, a, a joy to have you here. Um, really um, excited about the 10th anniversary of Osama, and I hope we get more readers to to the book. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. Uh, I don't get to talk about Philip K. Dick very often, so whenever you need a, you know, a, <laughs> a talking head, well, a talking head. <laughs> All right. Well, Lavi, we'll have you back. Well, I'll stick around for a second to give you some more details. But um, uh, thanks for coming on to the Dickheads podcast, and for our listeners, uh, keep it paranoid as always. <laughs>